0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit NorthMonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. I just got off the phone with a friend who's, they're having to take their fa- his father off of life support like right now. If y'all would pray for them. But you know, he's, he's sad but rejoicing because his dad received Christ Monday. And he'd been praying for his daddy his whole life. And I said, you know, I'm sorry that your dad's going to have a short life on the planet, but I'm grateful that he has eternal life, aren't you? And he just kept saying, it is well. It is well. And, and those times have a way of putting things back into perspective, don't they? See, we live in a world of small things. Now, they're not unimportant, but they're small. Small. Sometimes they're necessary, but they're still small. Um, Sometimes they're relaxing or comforting, but they're still small. And the great tragedy is that by living in a world of small things, it's easy to let small things become big things. And it's easy to allow the small things to take control of our lives and our lives are spent invested in small ways. My wife Amy keeps chickens, as you well know, if you've been around us for 15 minutes. And uh, she's got about 30 chickens, some of the ugliest chickens you'd ever see. All different kinds and varieties, and she loves those chickens. She says that they are a wonderful distraction and they're peaceful, and they kind of are. It just so happens that in our backyard, there also lives a fairly sizable great horned owl. We named him Maximus. And ever so often, Maximus likes to enjoy a chicken dinner. I mean, who doesn't, right? Turns out everybody likes chicken. And uh, so from time to time, Maximus will, you know, rise a little early or maybe go to bed a little late, and he's out while the chickens are up, and Maximus will have a chicken. One time he had five chickens in five days. Amy was getting pretty frustrated with Max, but... uh, Somebody said to me, why don't you shoot that owl? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you know that in Louisiana, true story, it's against the law to possess an owl feather? There are people on death row who killed owls. That's how serious that stuff is. And anyway, who cares about a chicken? I mean, chickens are $2, but an owl is priceless. And so I like to think of it this way. My wife raises chickens, but I'm raising an owl. And every so often I have to feed my owl a chicken. That's a price I'm willing to pay. My wife sees it a bit differently though. And she's kind of a little frustrated at times with my perspective on chicken value. But we are chicken people, which the other day we're, we're uh, scrolling through uh, Amazon Prime trying to find something to watch. And we come across this show called Chicken People. Have y'all seen it? It's mesmerizing. It's like watching a dumpster fire. It's, it's kind of like watching... Tiger King or something. You've got these people who've become obsessed with chickens. I'm talking about obsessed and they're Their goal in life is to create the perfect chicken. There's some book somewhere that describes the chicken, and everybody's trying to create through breeding these perfect chickens. And they've got this one engineering guy, and he is really consumed with this thing. He's like a savant when it comes to chicken stuff. He can remember every chicken that he's bred, and just so happened in the show that he won like best of show with a silver lace wine dote. But he's showing you, well, this is really good because his back does this, and his tail does this, and his comb does that. But see this feather right here this feather needs to be more defined and I'm going to breed that out of him and he can remember every chicken that he's bred in every family tree to get that perfect chicken in fact the chicken that won he calls him chicken number 5791 in the silver lace wine family And he knows every chicken. He had one line of chickens that was over 11,000. And he would look at that chicken and go, that's 11,322. This guy is like the rain man of chickens. And their idea is that someday they're going to create a perfect chicken and win all of these chicken shows. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching this, and the whole time I'm kind of giggling to myself because I'm thinking of that line from Dave Barry where he said, you know, there's a fine line between a hobby and mental illness. <laughs> People become consumed with chickens. And I thought, one day this guy's going to stand before the Lord, and God's going to say, what'd you do with your life? And he's going to hold up a chicken. He's going to go, God, I made the perfect chicken. And I thought, how easy it is for us to become consumed And invest our lives in small things. And as I'm kind of clucking my tongue and shaking my head at that guy, all of a sudden I have to kind of back up and look at myself and go, you know what, it's easy for me too to get consumed with small things. And I thought about all the things I get all wired up up about. And you look at the small things, you look, they're fine and good. And sometimes they relax us. Sometimes they're essential for life. But look, small things can never be your reason for living, right? We're talking about following God. That's the series that we're into. Last time we looked at Abraham, and I talked about it starts with a dream. You know, Abraham got this dream. And and we all need a dream. We need a life dream. If you don't have a life dream, you're going to drift. God's got a plan for your life, and you need to discover what that is. And it starts with a heart. You know, you've got to have a heart that God wants to lay a big dream on. And so God's always looking at our heart. But you have to be patient with the dream. You don't want to rush out and go, hey, God told me this, and then tomorrow he tells me that, next week he tells me that. I grow weary of people telling me what God told them sometimes. You know, Ecclesiastes says, be careful, be patient. Going into the presence of God, don't be so hasty in your words. Listen, draw near to listen. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools, right? So be cautious with your dream. Seek wise counsel. And be patient with your dream. Dreams don't happen overnight. And sometimes uh, sometimes the dream's not ready for you, and sometimes you're not ready for the dream. But once you get it, man, pursue it. And I want to add to that this morning by saying, whatever dream you get, make sure your dream is about big things. Big things. I love what Henry Blackaby used to say in that old... Uh, devotional series called uh, Experiencing God. He said that God gives God-sized dreams. When God puts a a dream on a person's heart, it's always God-sized. That way, the only person that can get credit for it is God himself. So don't give your life to small things. Give your life to big things. And so I want to talk about big things today. And, And our model is Nehemiah. So let's get our Bibles out, turn your devices on. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll give you about 20 minutes to find Nehemiah. For some of you guys, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. If you get the Psalms, turn left, go back, you passed it. If you're at Chronicles or Kings, go right and you'll find it. Nehemiah. While you're trying to find it, let me me set the story up. Nehemiah was the cupbearer for a Persian king named Artaxerxes. Around 445 B.C. You might ask, what's a good Jewish boy doing in the palace of a Persian king? That's a good question. Uh, it's a long story. Let me try to be brief and summarize. Sometime between 587, 586, depending on what historian you're talking to, this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon, came into Judah with his, with his military and utterly destroyed the city. I mean, raised it to the ground, broke the wall down, destroyed the temple, and then carried all the people off back to Babylon. His strategy for world domination was whenever they would conquer a place that was trouble, troubling, they would take the people out of that area, displace them, bring them to another area, and then bring another people group and replant them in there. That way they could never be stable enough to revolt against him. And so the Jews were dispersed. They call it the Babylonian captivity. The Prophets had prophesied of it, and that happened about 587, 586. About 50 years after that, a king of Persia came to power named Cyrus, and Cyrus defeated the Babylonians. And after he defeated the Babylonians in 539 B.C., remember we're counting backwards, it's B.C. In 538 he issued the edict of Cyrus, which said, All of these people that were displaced in the Babylonian period could now return home. So in essence, it says to the Jews, you guys can return home. So there was a Jewish leader named Zerubbabel that you've probably never heard of, but he gathered together about 42,000 people and they went back to Judah, specifically to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to rebuild their civilization, to restore their kingdom. That was about 50 years after the captivity started. Um, We don't really know. I don't really know when Zerubbabel arrived, but they started construction of the temple in 520 B.C., and they finished it five years later in 515, and it was just a shadow of Solomon's temple. In fact, some of the old men that saw it, the Bible says they wept when they saw it because it, it wasn't the glory that it once was, but they had a temple. But not every Jew went back when when they were offered uh, the the opportunity to go home. they didn't all go home, just like in nineteen forty eight when the United Nations made um, Israel a nation again, and told all the Jews after World War II, "You can go back." Uh, not all of them went, and they didn't all go then. Some of the people were used to living in Persia and other places, and so they just stayed and Nehemiah was one of those people. so now fast forward about eighty years. After Zerubbabel, so it's, a, it's another couple of generations, you're 80 years later, Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king. And uh, you say, so what's a cupbearer? Well, it's exactly as the name implies. Nehemiah brought the king his Diet Cokes. That's what he did. The only thing was, before the king drank them, Nehemiah had to drink them because if they were poisoned, Nehemiah would die first. And so that was a price that the king was willing to pay. You know, so you become the cupbearer. It seems like a menial task, almost a servant's job, But don't be deceived by that. Realize that proximity is power. And the closer you were to the throne, the more power and influence you have. So Nehemiah and the king, by virtue of the fact that he is constantly in the king's presence, develop a meaningful relationship. And there are times where people would realize Nehemiah's got influence. And so Nehemiah, when next time you get in front of Artaxerxes, if you don't mind, could you tell him about my sister's brother-in-law? You know, that kind of thing. And at the same time, there were undoubtedly situations where the Persian king would be talked to his leaders, be unsatisfied with the direction, and he's struggling with the decision. He's like, Nehemiah, you know, these guys have been talking about this. What's your take on it? He's a very important man. Here's the point. Nehemiah was an important man with an important job doing important things. And his job seemed big until something really big came along. Now let's go to verse 1, Nehemiah 1. These are the memoirs, so this is the diary of Nehemiah. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, the son of Hacaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the f- fortress in Susa, of Susa, the capital. Hanani, uh, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah, That's Jerusalem there. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. Do you see that? And trouble and disgrace means they were in bad distress and terrible reproach. Things are really bad and these people are very humiliated. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So they have no protection from outside influence. And from the comfort of his ivory tower, Nehemiah had, as I would think would be reasonable, had assumed that life in Judah had returned to normal to the days of Solomon and David. I mean, it had been 70 years. The temple had been rebuilt. You could assume that Surely they had restored their broken world. And all of a sudden, here comes this news, man. The wall is still down. Society's not been rebuilt. The people are in distress. This is frontier stuff. And they're in constant threat. They're being humiliated. And that news just crushed Nehemiah. Look at verse 4. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. And there's something here, really. The people that do big things have big hearts. And do you see that visceral reaction to this news? I mean, he had assumed that life was good, that you know, it was just like it was in David and Solomon, and we could all rejoice. And there are a lot of people in churches today... We want to live in our ivory tower. We want to exist in our our evangelical bubble. And we want to pretend that life is still the good old 70s and 80s, where where the church is still influential and well thought of and looked to for guidance and leadership and wisdom. And and we're totally unaware that we now live in a broken and post-Christian world until we hear the news And at that moment when we hear that news, something needs to go off in us. And we need to feel that same pain that Nehemiah felt and feel the same broken heart that Nehemiah had. Um, Nehemiah was about to realize that the important stuff he was doing was not the big stuff that God had for him. Uh, Verse 5, Then I said, starts to pray, Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commandments. Look at this. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes. And look at this. He's not just talking about them. It's not just look at these. uh, God, I know that your people are a bunch of pagans. Watch what he says. Yes, even my own family and I, he's taking personal responsibility. We've sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations which you gave us through Moses. We might have gone back and rebuilt the temple, but nobody bothered to rebuild the law and society under that law. Please remember, God, remember your promise, what you told your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I'll scatter you among the nations. You did that. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, even then, if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh, Lord. Now watch this, because it it transitions from philosophy to biology. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. What's he praying? Make the king favorable. Put it in his heart. Is Nehemiah about to do what I think he's about to do? Nehemiah, the cupbearer for the king, is going to walk away from all of that and go into the chaos and the destruction of Judah and take charge of the rebuilding of of the city, not only of the walls, but of society itself for God. And that's exactly what he did. He left the palace. He left an important job for a big thing. And he went to Judah and he not only rebuilt the wall, but he reestablished society after they built the wall. If you read Nehemiah, uh, you'll see that this beautiful revival breaks out as they bring out the law deuteronomy that was discovered in the process of rebuilding the broken things and they lay it before the people and they say this is what god called us to do and the people immediately saw we're not doing that and they began to repent and take serious steps of correction and the the nation was restored he did that for 12 years 12 long years And after 12 years, he returned to the palace, but he didn't stay long because his heart was now stuck on bigger things. And the luxury and affluence of the the palace must have felt hackneyed and hollow compared to what he had just gone through. So in verse 6, he says, I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign though I later asked his permission to return. He returned to be the governor of that frontier nation of Judah, and he would never again know the luxury and the influence of palace life. Now, when you read the book of Nehemiah, and please go home and read it today, you're going to see that in the process of rebuilding that wall, it was dirty and dangerous and difficult and the people that were in that land were humiliating them and making fun of them and threatening them. at the one point they're well they're rebuilding the wall they have to rebuild it with one hand on a brick and one hand on a sword because there's this constant threat of violence from the people around them and nehemiah pulls that off gets that done under the power and authority of god and then he goes through this revival, establishes civilization, goes back to Persia, and he's no longer content with the luxury of the palace because he wants his life to be about big things. And he goes back. Here's what I want you to understand. He left something important to do something big. And that's what a big dream from God will do for you. God's got big things for you. Don't waste your life on small things. Let's talk about big things. Let's talk about how they impact our life. Here's the first thing. Big things are going to challenge your agenda. I'm not sure what Nehemiah's agenda was the day those guys from Judah showed up. I'm not really sure what he was about that day. You know, maybe he had to do the laundry or run by the post office or, you know, he had to be at breakfast. The king needed to have his coffee and orange juice and then, you know, he had to be back at lunchtime for his whatever so he could drink. And then by by that time, maybe he could spend a little time at the spa and get to the club. And, you know, he had to be back for the hottie toddy at night that the that the king always needed every night to go to sleep and all that stuff, you know. But all of a sudden, when, when, when news from Judah shows up, challenged his agenda and big things do that we see it with peter james and john man they had this fishing business on the sea of galilee it wasn't a small thing they had servants and multiple boats peter's daddy uh jonah and james and john's daddy zebedee had built this business that no doubt they intended for their sons to inherit and you know everything's going great in the fishing business on the Sea of Galilee until Jesus shows up with a big thing. You see, they were doing important stuff. They were feeding people. They were employing people. They were, they were doing great things. But Jesus showed up with a big thing. He says, look, I, you guys are great fishermen. I've got a different kind of fish I want you to catch. I want you to start catching men. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter and Andrew, throwing a net in the water for they were they fishing they fished for a living verse 19 here's the key jesus called out to them come follow me i'll show you how to fish for people and they left their nets at once and followed him he wrecked their agenda and that day they changed their vocation let me just say this some of you are called to change vocations god's calling you to serve him full time He's going to wreck your agenda and call you the Nehemiah changed his vocation. He was no longer cupbearer. When Peter, James, and John left the fishing business on the Sea of Galilee, they changed vocations, and sometimes that happens. But the big stuff doesn't always demand a vocation change, but it does always demand an agenda change. Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that one? It's funny, Jesus never called him a Good Samaritan, but the story goes like this. There was a fellow... Traveling this dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell among thieves and they beat him half to death and left him laying there on the side of the road, half dead. And here comes a, a priest, you know, and he's got an agenda that's packed with all kinds of really important spiritual stuff. And he sees this bleeding guy on the side of the road and he's like, ooh, I can't sacrifice my agenda. And he kind of goes around the other way. Next up is a Levite and he does the same thing, you know. Then here comes the Samaritan. And when the Samaritan comes, he allows the big thing to be more important than his agenda. Luke 10, Then a despised Samaritan, that's new living. I think Jesus called him a certain Samaritan. But he was despised. The, the Jews hated the Samaritans. A despised Samaritan came along. When they saw the man, they felt compassion. He felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds in olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. He saw him. He felt compassion for him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds and carried him to a hotel. Now look, the Samaritan didn't change his vocation, but he did change his agenda. We don't know what he was planning to do that day. We don't know what his schedule was. But I'm sure his schedule wasn't to invest the rest of the day in a hurting man. And yet when the big stuff showed up, his agenda changed. And that's what we need to get our heads around. Look, here it is. God brings big things to us, and we have to let it wreck our schedule. Are you willing to do that? Because here's the thing. Big things are not interruptions to your purpose. They are your purpose you get that? A big thing is not an interruption to your purpose. That is your purpose. That's why you're here. I know some of you think, well, my purpose is to make a perfect chicken. That's not your purpose. That's a small thing. It's fine. It's a good hobby. Gets a little jiggy after a while. But your purpose is people. Big things confront your priorities. It's not to imply that what you're doing is unimportant or not necessary. It is. You just have to be careful not to let the necessary things take precedent over the weighty things. And big things have a way of doing that. You may not like it. You may feel resentful. You you may get upset about it. I think about uh, Peter's dad, Jonah. We We don't know much about him. But we know we know a little bit more about James and John's dad when they when when Jesus came and said, "Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men." Their daddy Zebedee. What do you figure he did when they did that? I I think I know what he did. You know why? Because later on, Jesus renames James and John. You know what he names them? Sons of thunder. He calls them sons of thunder. Now, notice he doesn't call them thunder. He calls them sons of thunder. Why? Because that's what Zebedee did when Jesus took his boys. He thundered. Because Jesus was saying, your priority of a big fishing business is not as important as my priority, which is change the world. And what I've got is bigger than what you're doing. And sometimes that can be offensive. Peter and James and John joined are in the fishing village. Nehemiah's in the palace. The Good Samaritan's on the road to Jericho. And each one had to reach a point where he said, Is what I'm doing as important as what God wants me to do? And that's an important decision we all have to make. And here's the third thing, last thing big things change your perspective. Once you get a hold of big things, it's hard to care about small things. And let me just say, man, you know what's killing churches today? Small things. They care about small things. They care about flowers and curtains and dress code and and, and it's easy to do that. But once you get into big, you know you, you talk to somebody who comes off the mission field and you know what they say? Here's what they'll inevitably say, I can't believe I cared so much about all this other stuff. Once you see the big thing, it's hard to care about the little things. I mean Nehemiah went back to the palace but he couldn't stay. He had to get back to Jerusalem because that, what he was doing while it was important, it wasn't the big thing. Peter, you know, after the resurrection, Peter tried to go back to fishing, but he couldn't do it because he had been involved in the big thing. And big things change you. And, and when that happens, you'll find you have little patience for pettiness. You know, before the Russians invaded, Ukraine was just like us, only more so it was like every man did whatever seemed right in his own eyes. 70 years of Soviet communism had created an environment where everybody was really about themselves. I mean, I was over there and we would go over and work the camp, come back. And those of you who worked in the camps would say the same thing. It, it, it led to sort of this this looking out for number one. It, we don't care who it hurts. And there was a lot of graft and corruption and all of those things that were characterized by selfishness like this one time this really happened we had a we had a uh, not we but before my time over there some doctors had a cat scan machine uh donated to a hospital in ukraine and so they at a great expense brought that cat scan machine over to ukraine and as they were unloading it at the dock the guy running the crane looks over at one of our guys that was there and said, pay me a bribe. And he said, we don't do that. We don't pay you bribes. And he hit a switch and he dropped that CAT scan machine on the dock and ruined it. That's the degree of corruption. But when the Russians invaded, everything changed. we got a guy in our church... Grew up in this church. He went to Annapolis, and they gave him a choice, Marines or Navy. He went Marines, and now he's a major in the Marines. And uh, he trained soldiers. He sent this note to my son, who sent it along to me. Today we said goodbye to our Ukrainian student, Alex, headed home to command one of those foreign fighter battalions that are forming. And his wife and young daughter headed to Poland to now be refugees. His parting comment, this is an historic time for my country. Before this, we were a collection of Ukrainian people. This has made us a nation. Big things do that. As horrible and tragic as this war is, as senseless and cruel, one thing has happened, the Ukrainian people have come together. Here's another note forwarded from my daughter-in-law who was at a women's conference when the speaker talked about a conversation she had with a Christian friend in Ukraine. These are her notes, Kamina, Ukraine, 3 a.m., small village north of Kiev, safest area as of now. Families separated because men are not allowed to cross the border. Women and children are fleeing. Orphans are being moved out of the country. Children with disabilities moved out, providing sports to bring joy, played in the subway system, hiding from the bombs. Nobody talks about denominations anymore. We are just together. I thought about that. Nobody talks about the small things that divide us and define us because a big thing has showed up. That's what happens when you're confronted by big stuff. Here's what she wrote. I really trust the Lord that He has everything under control. If He wants me or my family to go home, there's nothing I can do. The presence of Jesus in the boat with you does not keep you from the storm, but it keeps the boat from sinking. Those are the words of a Ukrainian mother hiding in a subway from the bombs that are falling just north of Kiev. Nobody talks about denominations anymore. Can you imagine you're, you're in a subway and bombs are falling and you're a Christian and you're like, well, look, are you Methodist or are you, you know? I, I, we don't really hang out with Methodists. Are you guys Presbyterian? Oh, sorry. You don't care anymore. You don't care. Because a big thing has come. And when a big thing comes, it redefines Everything. Big things change you. They change your perspective. You look back at all the little things you worried so much about, and you say, what really matters? I mean, this matters. This is big. The the rest of it, not worth the worry. I say that because God has big things for you. He's got big things for you. And and if you're going to be involved in that big thing, it's going to change everything. And, and the little things aren't going to matter so much anymore. You see, when you do big things, you make a big difference. And so our prayer needs to be, Father, free me from the tyranny of small things. Because one day I'm going to stand before the Lord. And when I stand before the Lord, I want to be able to say, when He says, Bill, what would you do with your time I gave you on the ball? I want to be able to say, God through your Holy Spirit's work in my life, I I tried to do big things. I do not want to stand before the Lord on that great and, and terrible day and hold up a chicken and say, hey, look, God, I made a perfect chicken. And I believe God wants you to do big things. He wants to put a dream in your heart. God loves you and he has a plan for your life and that plan involves big things. But you have gotta let him. You have gotta let him have your agenda. You willing to do that? You willing to say, hey, look, God, your big stuff's not an interruption. It's my purpose. You gotta let him have your priorities. Look, what you're doing is important. I'm not denying that. But if there's something bigger, then let that be your priority. And it's gonna change your perspective. When you start doing big stuff, you aren't going to care about little things anymore. So shouldn't that be our prayer right now? Would you just pray with me right now, just all across the room, those of you online worshiping with us, if you would, let's just go before the Father and let's, let's say, God, don't let me waste my life. Father, we want to do your will. We want to do big things whatever that means. So here's our commitment to you, Lord. You have my agenda. Here's my calendar. Wreck it if you need to. You are our priority. All of these other things that we establish as priorities, Father, we yield them to you. You are our priority. And as you give us a vision for big things, Lord, change our perspective. Because when we live among small things, Father, it's so hard for us to tell the difference between a small thing and a big thing. And we can consume our lives with small things. And on that day when we stand before you, we want to say, Father, we didn't always do big things, but when you showed us a big thing, we did it. And I just pray that you'd give us that spirit and the courage to do that. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for being our Lord. Thank you for the purpose you have for our lives and the dream you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.